the words that I'd like to direct your attention to this morning found in the book of Romans, uh, Romans chapter one, and we'll be reading verses 18 to 32, Romans 1, 18 to 32. Paul writes, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been conceived ever since the creation of the world, things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their bodies to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Again, please pray with me. Lord, we are humbled even as we read Romans 1 again and are reminded of our own sinful condition for each one of us came into the world not worshiping you but really serving and worshiping ourselves and Lord we only have any confidence to come before you to have any mercy or even to receive any understanding from your word on the basis of what Christ has done in his mercy to forgive us and to transform us And Lord, we ask that you would continue to renew our minds, to deepen our understanding, that we might think like you think. We want to think thoughts after you, that we wouldn't be caught up in the error of this world, the errors of our culture, Lord, or even our previous understandings. We want to think in light of your word. And so we pray that you would use your word um, to direct our understanding, particularly in regard to 
to the sin of homosexuality. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. At the end of last year, the Canadian government passed a bill called Bill C-4, and that began to take effect this week. The bill criminalizes causing another person to undergo conversion therapy, promoting or advertising conversion therapy, end quote. And the bill's definition of conversion therapy is deliberately broad, Uh Conversion therapy as a therapy, a psychological therapy that has been developed is erroneous and is dangerous and is not good. We don't endorse conversion therapy as a psychological method. However, the definition of conversion therapy given in the Canadian bill is so broad, it it would include uh, any pastor who might speak against homosexuality in a sermon or who counsels a person to abandon Uh, homosexual practices. The bill states, quote, everyone who knowingly promotes or advertises conversion therapy is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than two years. And it's in response to this bill that was passed by the Canadian Parliament, actually unanimously, uh, that a number of pastors in Canada uh, have chosen this day, the the first Sunday that this bill has taken effect to uh, preach on the sin of homosexuality. And they've asked American pastors to stand with them and to uh, preach on the Bible's um, view of homosexuality. Um, And I'm encouraged by these pastors' response. Uh, For pastors in Canada, this really is a Daniel 3 moment. You call in Daniel 3 when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were uh, commanded to bow before Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. They refused. And, in, and they were thrown into a fiery furnace, although the Lord preserved them. And also their friend Daniel, uh, chapters later, was called to, commanded not to pray to any other god. And yet his response was then to open his window and to continue his practice of prayer as he had always prayed. And these Canadian pastors understand that homosexuality is not an issue that the Bible is vague on. And so it's not something that they can just pussyfoot around in order to avoid jail time just because it's no longer popular in their culture. Because God is extremely clear in his word that homosexuality is a sin. And it's the church's job to clearly and um, honestly communicate what God's word says on any issue that is addressing a culture. It's the church's job to address major issues. And since I first heard this request, I was so encouraged by these Canadian pastors who want to just make God's word clear. They understand their role is not just to make people like Christianity, but just simply to proclaim what God says and to do so faithfully. And as, as the request came to, to join them in preaching, honestly, I hesitated. And not because I have any qualms about addressing this issue of homosexuality. Um, but honestly, the, the, the reason I hesitate is because um, I, I really want to continue preaching through numbers. Uh, it's like uh, rescheduling a date with your wife. 
Uh, it's something you were looking forward to. And it's like, ah, oh, gosh, I, can, I mean to have to re- put it off another week. And I was ready to preach on Numbers 12. Um, another reason I had hesitation is because I, I know this congregation. And my responsibility as congregation is, or is primarily to this recongregation. And, and you guys know where I stand, I, I believe. And I, and I believe I know where you stand, or else you probably wouldn't be at this church. Um, and so it's like, yeah, is this really a, an issue that needs to be addressed? Um, but then as, as I thought about it more, too, I realized, you know, there's lots of sermons you can listen to on homosexuality by faithful pastors. And again, many people are preaching on it this Sunday as well, besides us. But I also thought it'd be good for you yourself to hear not just my position or me just to give a brief statement regarding homosexuality in our culture, but to actually hear my heart as a, just personally hear my heart, not just another person's interpretation of a passage that you might hear online. Um, but another reason I, I honestly, and this is kind of a weaker reason that I, why I hesitated to, to preach on the issue is because unlike the pastors in Canada um, who are risking jail time for preaching on this issue, I got no skin in the game. Um, that no such law has really been passed in America. And there's just a very big difference. And, and one of the things I, I just, I really don't like is posturing, especially posturing in the pulpit, pretending like preaching God's word is really some courageous thing when there's no real cost involved. There's no cost to me in preaching on homosexuality, especially to you guys, um, or very little. Um, you know, even if, um, you know, years later, somebody looks up a sermon and, 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 and I get put in prison. You know, I guess that could, that could happen. Um, I'm not too concerned about that, but it could happen. Um, so maybe there's some brief concern, but not really, not yet. Um, I, honestly, I think very few people outside of this congregation care what I have to say. I'm a pretty small fish. And so, and I don't, so I don't want to posture and act like, Preaching on, me preaching on homosexuality in the States, even in Portland, is what these men in Canada are facing. There's just a very big difference. But at the same time, they asked us for support and for solidarity. It's like, yeah, you know what? I can do that. If that would be an encouragement to them to just know that they're not standing alone. And, and you guys know, sometimes when you feel like you're the only person in your company or you know, the only person even in your church that believes a certain way, it's just nice to know that... You're not alone. Other reasons. Uh, in years past, Grace and Truth has regularly set aside um, a week in January to preach on the issue of abortion. So we have a precedent of taking uh, important cultural issues that need to be addressed. And, you know, why not you know, take the issue of homosexuality since now it has become a more pressing issue along with abortion. And... Uh, also, really the tipping point for me was as I studied the issue of homosexuality in Romans 1 this week, I really found it helpful. And I thought, you know, in, in just giving even a, a very brief examination of this passage, because obviously there's so much here, we're not going to cover everything. But even in what I found and what I'll present to you briefly, I think you will be encouraged and helped by. And so, um, again, I'd like to direct your attention to Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. This section, verses 18 through 27, uh, really can be broken down into two simple parts. 
It addresses the problem with man, namely that God is angry with men because men refuse to worship him. That's the problem. And in fact, that's the main point of the passage. And what goes along with this problem is God's judgment upon man for his sin. God gives men over to their sin. And so really this passage is just explaining what man has done, how awful what man has done in rejecting God, rejecting their responsibility to worship God. And in doing so, God has just given them over to their sin. It is just an explanation of God's judgment, particularly of giving men over to their desires. And the sin of homosexuality is specifically addressed in the second section, verses 24 to 27. But again, what what should be immediately apparent from the outline is that homosexuality is not the main point. We're addressing it because of what's going on in our our culture, broader uh, Western culture um, in Canada and in Europe even in our own country. But homosexuality is not the main point. The main point is worship. Men are given over and women are given over to homosexuality because they refuse to worship God. That's actually the central and core sin that we need to recognize. And it's a sin that every man and every woman has fallen short in, right? Uh, The there is no one that is righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Let's look first of all at the, at the problem as it's expressed in beginning of verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What's the truth? What can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. So again, in this paragraph, Paul explains that man's primary problem is God's wrath. In verse 18, it says that his wrath is already revealed. It's, It's something we can see around us in nature. And God is angry, it says, because he's made his existence clear. It's evident. It's evident both in them, in man, and around man. The phrase shown it to them means it is manifest to or in them. So God has gone out of his way to make his existence obvious. And and Paul notes two ways he's revealed himself. First, his eternal power is clearly seen. This is evident in the fact that the world exists at all. Like everything had to come from something. There needed to be an original creator. Right? Men can easily reason that everything comes into existence somehow. So there must have been a creator that always existed and brought everything into being. He also notes, besides the eternal power, his divine nature. This refers to God's majesty and his greatness. His godness, you could say. The creation clearly reveals that there's a God, there's a designer. And people know it. But they just suppress that truth, it says. Men choose to ignore that reality so they don't have to honor him or give thanks to him, even though his existence is clear. 
Notice that word, they, they suppress the truth. That word means to, to hold it down, to squash it, to quench it. Their conscience reminds them that there's a God, but then they, they quench their conscience. They muffle it like a, like a um, stubborn teenager who, who's getting a, a lecture from their parents. and They put on their headphones and turn up the music so they don't have to listen. It's just deliberate defiance because they don't want to hear the truth. It's what unbelievers do to the clear evidence of God's existence. And so Paul says, this is why God is angry. And after giving a reason for his anger, he then explains, what are the consequences of this choice? The suppression of the truth. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, what you need to particularly note is that these consequences are tied to the truths that they suppress. Right? These are the natural results of man's own suppression. You, if we choose to reject this truth, this is what is a naturally going to happen for ignoring this truth. And Paul hi- highlights three things. Note first that they became futile in their thinking. Since men refuse to accept what's clearly evident and rational, God gives them over to irrationality, to absurd thinking, errant thinking. They believe illogical things, such as gender is a myth. Something that's so obvious, a three-year-old recognizes it. But they, they, they believe it, and they sincerely believe it. God has given them over to a futile mind. Secondly, they would not give thanks from their heart. And so God allowed their hearts to darken. Their hearts are darkened as a second consequence. Right? Because they, were, they, they refused to see the glory of God as it's evident all around them. They shut out God's light. Then God allows their heart to darken. And for them to become gloomy and discouraged. He gave them over to darkness and depression Thirdly, they became fools, it says, verse 23. And this foolishness is particularly expressed, you'll notice, in idolatry. In fact, that word fool that's used there is associated with idolatry. As it's explained, they exchanged the glory of God, the immortal God, for images resembling mortal man. Birds and animals and creeping things. I mean, just just recognize what's happened. Refusing to honor the immortal creator... They instead choose to worship things that are creations, even things they themselves have created. I mean, think about the futility of that. Something that you yourself create, worshiping as if it has some power to help you. I mean, it's absolute absurdity. But cultures throughout history have done this. And we ourselves in our culture do this, maybe not in clear idolatry but but in expecting created things to take the place of god to give us what only god himself can give us you recognize these are just natural consequences for what men have chosen for themselves they're natural consequences it's not it's not actually the lights went on and they went off Somebody's going to be listening to this recording going, what's going on? 
Darn. <laughs> I thought we had hope. Um, <laughs> that was weird. All right. It's not until verse 24 you'll notice that God's judgments are described. Up until this point, it's just, this is what naturally happens when you suppress these truths. But it's in verse 24 through 27 that God actually judges men by giving them over to their sin. Let's look at the second point. God's judgment upon men, you'll notice, really follows the same pattern of natural consequence. See, first, first men choose not to worship God, and then God judges men by giving them over to their sin, what they instead choose. And you'll notice that in, in, in the judgments that are highlighted, there is a, the, there's, there's very careful word choices that are used to help us see that the judgments fit the crimes. And I'll, and I'll try to make this obvious. Look at verse 24. The first judgment of, be, of, of a dishonoring of the body. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies. They, this is because, you'll look at verse 21, they refuse to honor God or give thanks to him. Right? God gives them over to dishonor as a judgment because they refuse to honor him. Men chose this, and so God gives them over to this consequence. Verse, 20, verse 26 repeats, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Again, since they would not honor God, God gives them over to a sin that by its nature is dishonorable. Don't honor God. It will lead to dishonor, is the point. Look also at the word exchange. Verse 23 says that man exchanged the glory of the immortal God to worship things in nature. Or as it says in verse 25, repeating the same idea, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Verse 26, their women exchanged Natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Then you see it also in the word nature. See, even though God in his divine nature is clearly perceived in nature, men choose not to honor God. Therefore, God gives them over to unnatural lusts. Verse 26. They exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Also, men gave up natural relations with women. What I want us to see is that the very unnaturalness of the sin of homosexuality, that's what's being described here, the very unnaturalness of the sin is meant to wake men up to what they are choosing. This is what rejecting God leads to. We've got to see that connection God gives them over their sin that they might see where sin has taken them so that they might repent. The very shame, the unnaturalness is meant to wake them up to what they're doing, what they're choosing. It's a judgment, but we have to see this is a judgment that is bent on mercy. Consider what the Lord says in Lamentations chapter 3 verse 31. We had this as the scripture reading last week. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, 
he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. God doesn't want to bring such grievous punishment, such discipline, but he does so so that men would wake up to what sin does. It's meant to bring men to repentance. As he says in Ezekiel 18, verse 30, speaking of Israel, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgression, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you've committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. This would be God's message to every one of us, and in particular in Romans 1, to homosexuals. I have no desire for you to be destroying your body in this way, to be living a life of such shame. But I want you to turn and live. I've given you over this so that you might recognize your need for me. And I want to pay a special attention to the end of verse 27. Notice how homosexuality is described. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. That word shameless is aske mosune. It means disgraceful, shameful. The word is used to describe the way one feels if they in their nakedness. And so just imagine that somehow all of a sudden your clothes were ripped off you and you were in a public place fully naked. How you would feel. The shame that would have come in, the desire to flee, to find some sort of covering. That's what this word is speaking to. The very nature of this sin is shameful. Now, I don't point that out to try and pour more shame on than is necessary for those who might struggle with this sin, but to point out actually the reason, I believe, for why the homosexual community has used the word pride as its slogan to counter this very the very nature of what homosexuality produces. It's a shameless attempt to cover up the natural shame of accompanying, of what accompanies homosexuality. Shame that is there as a mercy. Shame that is there in order to bring them to repentance. And we need to recognize this. Because you don't kill cancer by giving a... just giving a patient a bunch of opioids and telling them, oh, that, that, that pain you feel isn't really real. It's imaginary. You cut out cancer with surgery or you blast it with radiation or kill it with chemotherapy. You don't just numb people. Tell them, hey, you're really healthy. It's everybody out there that just doesn't understand you. You, you, you really are in, in a healthy condition. It's them that are unhealthy. That's not helpful. The worst thing that we can do is to pretend homosexuality is normal and natural. 
That is just giving somebody with cancer opioids and pretending that you're helping them when actually you're just allowing them to just get sucked further in to their death. In 1987, Marshall Kirk and Erastes Pill wrote a very influential essay entitled The Overhauling of Straight America. And back you know, 40 years ago when this happened, they offered these five strategies to promote homosexuality. Talk about gays and gayness as loudly and as often as possible. Portray gays as victims, not as aggressive challengers. Give protectors a just cause. Make gays look good. Make the victimizers look bad. The reason I give you this list is just to point out, notice what's really behind what they're trying to do. The fundamental aim of shattered strategy is to eliminate the shame of homosexuality in our culture. Make, make homosexuality seem normal and normative. Right? If it's normal, there's, there's no longer any reason to be ashamed. And you solve the problem. The great problem with this sin is the shame. And so if everybody embraces it, there's no more shame. You've arrived. There's no longer any problem. But recognize that it's because of the shamefulness of homosexuality that the people who do struggle with this sin really are ashamed. Now, I suppose they could hard, a person can harden their heart so far, just like we can, regarding any sin that we no longer feel shame over it. But that tends to be a, a long process. And I don't think we should assume that whoever we're talking with does not feel any shame for what they're doing. In fact, I think one of the reasons that the homosexual community is known for its, its compassion and its care, its, its willingness to come alongside one another with other people who struggle with that. Of course, they don't think of it as a struggle, but who also are homosexuals. It's because they understand the shame each one another feels. And you yourself know when you feel ashamed of something, when you're embarrassed, you want to run to whatever's going to cover up that shame. Because you're desperate. Shame is an awful feeling. It's horrible. And you want to go wherever, it, wherever you can. Where can I find refuge? And if that refuge is, is, is somebody saying, you don't need to be ashamed, then it's very comforting. And, and, and so the community knowing that says, hey, here's a place where you won't feel shame. And they emphasize that. The problem is, is that it doesn't change the reality Homosexuality, by God's design, is shameful. Because it's not in line with His design as He's created men and women. The only thing that can really cover the shame of that sin and any sin is the blood of Christ. That's it. Denying that sin is not shameful doesn't help anybody. Whether that sin is pride or whether that sin is homosexuality or lust. The only thing that can really cover the shame of any sin is Christ. And Christians being aware of the natural shame that accompanies the sin really are in the best place to offer real compassion. Compassion. 
real hope, real help. Because they too know the shame of sin and they know the only place that can remove that shame. Remember what Paul told the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Christians know what it's like to be ashamed of sin and to find forgiveness. As Paul says, but you were washed. You were sanctified, made holy. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In other words, Christians, you better than anybody else. In fact, you alone are in the place to offer the only way to receive a lifting or a covering of this shame that comes with sin. Whether that's for a homosexual or anybody. Christians can offer real hope without denying the reality that this sin is shameful. Now, again, don't misunderstand me. I don't mean that Christians have a responsibility to shame homosexuals. That would be ludicrous. That would be bad. It would be wrong and totally unnecessary. Because there's, there's a natural shame with that sin. We don't need to do that. That would just be cruel. Rather, what we need to do is show them that if there's a good reason you feel shame. And it's that good reason is because God is wanting you to feel shame so that you might see that the good gospel that is available to you so that you might be freed from your slavery to sin. We need to offer them the hope of the gospel. But in order for any offering of the gospel, any evangelism to have any impact or any weight, before we get to that step or that opportunity, we need to already be going out of our way to show that we're sincere in our love and in our offering of the gospel. And we need to show that we really care about them as people, as souls. We're not just wanting them to live like we live, believe like we believe, or act like we lack. No, we act like we act. We want them to know the grace and forgiveness and that comes from Christ and to turn and worship Him as they were originally designed. And so we need to be thinking, what can we do to show them we, we're trustworthy and that we're not going to deceive them? We're going to tell them the truth as God reveals it. And we really care about them as souls. Again, the point of all these verses is to highlight that the folly of choosing not to worship God leads to all sorts of Sin. And that the, the worst sin is not homosexuality. It's a failure to worship. That's the core problem. That is what we're calling everybody to. Whether they're homosexual or whether they're a, a child predator or whether they're a murderer or a thief or just a liar. We're calling all of them. No, leave all of your sin and 
no longer live for yourself, but for him who created you. This passage explains really why America looks the way it does. When a person or an entire nation chooses to not worship God, but instead worship a creature or some other creation, it results in this downward spiral of degradation. The reason our culture looks the way it does is because as a culture, we have rejected God and are continuing to do so at at um, exponential degrees. And this is what one Western historian said as he summarized the history of his country. The subjects to which I would ask each of my readers to devote his earnest attention are these. The life and morals of the community. The men and the qualities by which through domestic policy and foreign war, dominion was won and extended. Then as the standard of morality gradually lowers, let him follow the decay of the national character. Observing how at first it slowly sinks, then slips downward more and more rapidly, and finally begins to plunge into headlong ruin until he reaches these days in which we can bear neither our diseases nor their remedies. In these latter years, wealth has brought avarice or greed in its train. And the unlimited command of pleasure has created in men a passion for ruining themselves and everything else through self-indulgence and licentiousness. So writes the first century historian Livy in his history of the Rome uh, of Rome. My point in, re- in bringing this up is this is not the first time God has handed over a whole culture to their sin. This is a pattern we've seen throughout history and not the first time Western culture. It's happened many times in Western culture as we see in history. And we are experiencing in our culture a tidal wave again of God's judgment. But like our brothers and sisters who were alive at the time when Livy wrote this, by the way, Livy was an unbeliever. He, he recognized what was apparent to all. Like our brothers and sisters at that time, our responsibility now is not to um, cower in fear or to, to flee, tuck tail and run, but to clearly and honestly explain what God says in his word. That men need to repent from their sin and all of their sin. Our job is to make like Jonah who went to to Nineveh and preach a gospel of repentance because God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He didn't want to see any of those souls perish and neither should we. Well, how are those souls going to know they need to repent unless a preacher goes to them and shares with them their need of repentance? We have the only cure to cover the wrath of God. If we don't share that cure, namely the blood of Christ, they will perish. And so will our entire nation. And we should expect opposition. In fact, Kirk and Pill recognize that the main opposition to their agenda is the church. 
They recognized it wasn't going to be too hard to get the mainstream media to buy in over time, which they've done. And it, but if the, if, even if the media gives out, what's going what's to be the only thing that might point out the shamefulness of homosexuality? It's the church. So they write, when conservative churches condemn gays, there are only two things we can do to confound the homophobia of true believers. First, we can use talk to muddy the moral waters. This means publicizing support for gays by mod- more moderate churches, raising theological objections of our own about conservative interpretations of Bible teachings, and exposing hatred and inconsistency. Second, we can undermine the moral authority of homophobic churches by portraying them as antiquated backwaters, badly out of step with the times and with the latest findings of psychology. Against the mighty pull of institutional religion, one must set the mightier draw of science and public opinion. Such an unholy alliance has worked well against churches before on such topics as divorce and abortion, With enough open talk about the prevalence and acceptability of homosexuality, that alliance can work again here. And we know that it has. And so as all these churches buy into that lunacy, where's the cure? Who's left to administer the only cure for them to be set free from their slavery of sin and the wrath of God. It's us. And their agenda clearly has worked to the, to the extent that now it's illegal to, to preach or even counsel against homosexuality in Canada. It's clearly worked in our culture. Now, we're not where Canada is yet. We will be probably. Any, but even here in Portland... As you know, you might be seen as a bigot if you choose not to address somebody by their preferred pronoun or you choose not to attend uh, the the union of a a same-sex couple. You might even lose your job if you speak what the Bible says. But our primary concern as Christians is not that we might lose our job. It's not public opinion. Or even jail time. Our, pro, our, our concern, our primary concern is what's addressed at the very beginning of this passage. In verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. If Christians bow to the public pressure and deny the reality of what the Bible says about homosexuality, then what hope remains for people to escape the wrath of God? So how should we respond to homosexuals? These are just some things that came to my mind. First and foremost, give them the prodigal son story. Let them know that God wants to forgive. And he's handed them over to their sin, just like he's handed us over to our sin in times past. So that they might run to him and receive him in all of his grace that he offers point out 1 Corinthians 6 that unless they repent they will not inherit the kingdom of God it was, it was that parallel passage in Galatians 5 that brought me to Christ just seeing what a failure of repentance will lead to and let them know that everybody is a slave of sin all who fail to repent will perish 
because man's main problem is not their lust, their sexual immorality, or their homosexuality. It's that we fail to worship God, the Creator. We need our heart changed to no longer live for ourselves, but for Him. And that includes a need to repent from all of our sin, not just homosexuality. And so really, we're all in the same boat. There's nothing strange about them. We're all sinners. And they need to know that. And secondly, what make sure they know we're not trying to make people more like ourselves as if we're afraid of them. That's not why we call homosexuals or child abusers or thieves or proud people to repentance. We're certainly not afraid of homosexuals. We're not homophobic. We're theophobic. We're afraid of God. Because we know what happens if a person is outside of Christ and under God's wrath. We want people to worship God as He commands them to with all of their heart, all their soul, all their mind, all their strength. And that's the, the same goal that we would have for them is the same goal that we have for us. And at the same time as we share this with them, don't downplay the reality that homosexual is shameful. Homosexuality is shameful. Admit it. That's the, there's a reason for it. Help them see that. And then point them to 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let them know that there is a cleansing that is available if they will just turn and ask for it. Let's pray. God, we want to be used to help other souls who, are, who remain enslaved to this sin or any other sin. And Lord, we, we realize there's, there's so many misunderstandings and there's awkwardness complications. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand this issue more clearly so that we might be more effective in reaching the lost with the gospel. We ask that you would open up opportunities in our workplaces. Give us courage. Lord, even convince us that we have the hope of eternal life, that it's not going to be found in, in movies or in television or in public acceptance. And if we don't offer that hope, the people we're talking to may never receive it and die in their sins. Stir us up with love, God, that we might reach them with the same mercy by which you reached us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.